Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Um, Sorry, that's a great Disappointed answer. to come in this morning and find there's still no coffee. <laughs> and I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Maha Rafia Tal, Aaron Rapport, and Finbar Livesey. Don't say them, don't spoil the mood. Yes, dark then light. Bring no light into my darkness. <laughs> and we're going to try and make sense of Trump's cabinet. And I should say up front, I'm not sure we're up to the task of this. I certainly am finding it hard to fit all the pieces together. So the CIA is claiming that they were never naive about ISIS and that a lot of this, you know, this is the problem with intelligence is they can, everybody can see. I'm particularly looking at Aaron who's going to tell us about how the generals and the fast food executives and the oil barons make a foreign policy. Should we start with Mr. Rex Tillerson? I think we've each got lists in front of us. I'm looking at the Real Clear Politics cabinet tracker, which isn't as exciting as the poll tracker, uh, but it does keep throwing up surprises. I think it was yesterday morning it was confirmed that Rex Tillerson, who's the CEO of ExxonMobil, is going to be the next Secretary of State. He also holds the, it's not the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Vladimir Putin. What is Friendship it? Medal. The Friendship Medal, which I believe is also held by various other... Including world, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop, there we go. In so Soviet so days, it's a totally neutral and, and honorific title. In Soviet days, I think it was the Comradeship Medal. And now it's right, but he does seem to be quite close to Putin. He, we're told, was selected from a shortlist of four, which included Mitt Romney, David Petraeus, and Bob Corker, who's the senator from Tennessee, and is also quite hawkish on Russia. Mitt Romney, very hawkish on Russia. Petraeus, also somewhat. This guy, not so hawkish on Russia. Aaron, why is Rex Tillerson Secretary of State? Well, in one way, he's already been the head of a state. Being the head of ExxonMobil is kind of almost equivalent to being head of uh, the East India Company back in the day, although ExxonMobil couldn't print its own money and didn't have its own court system. But uh, being head of Exxon means that you're doing global diplomacy on a regular basis uh, with adversaries, with allies. You get very familiar with these cultures. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Site now does that. You can't live really anything does. without that. That's, that's that's the best thing that's happened this week. Yeah, like oh my god, it's, it's come that's, up. His, that's his soundtrack that comes on when you talk about Rex Tillerson. Exactly, that is his music. When, when he enters the room to negotiate yeah. in Kazakhstan, that's the music. That's through it, yeah. uh, we'll obviously oh. keep that in the broadcast. Aaron, sorry, I rudely interrupted you with my noisy machine. Yes. Uh, so what was I talking about before his, his uh, He does global diplomacy. Yeah. He does global diplomacy. Uh, and uh, as you noted earlier before the podcast began, he's gotten support from quarters such as Condoleezza Rice and Bob Gates. And in a way, uh, I would guess... Also known as the Republican Foreign Policy Establishment. Exactly. And Except the Bob Gates was also a CIA director for a Democrat president as well. Right. That's okay. It's, getting, we're already getting, it's already getting murky. Though he's Keep definitely going. a Republican. But yes. And these are people who are self-styled realists, uh, you'd say. And my guess for why they're supporting him, aside from his existing foreign policy expertise from working with Exxon, is that realists tend to see Russia as a potentially useful ally against China. They kind of look at Russia, the idea that Russia is a rising power as nonsense, right? Russia is a busted flush for demographic reasons and because of the falling price of oil and things like this, and that it naturally would ally with the United States against China, given the long border that they share. China is the real threat, uh, correct? 
I think that there's certainly a realist aspect to Tillerson's nomination. I'm not sure, though, it's about Russia in some sense as a weak power, because the most important thing that's going on as far as American foreign policy is concerned at the moment is in Syria, where actually Russia has turned upside down the whole framework for conducting a realist foreign policy that essentially Nixon and Kissinger established in the Middle East in the 1970s and has brought direct Russian military action in the region effectively for the first time in an extraordinarily long time. I think what's interesting about Tillerson in this respect is, is we have no idea really whatsoever what his position is on Syria, which is the most important and divisive issue within the American foreign policy establishment at the moment. So in that sense, this is a real venture into the unknown on Trump's part. I think that oil does matter, and I think that oil has been something that Trump has cared about from the beginning. He has in some sense been a, had an energy agenda. He's going to be in favour of um, finishing the Keystone pipeline off. He's going to want restrictions on fracking in the United States or those states that have restrictions removed. So in that sense, I think it, it makes sense because energy is going to be part of Trump's realism. And we're going to come on to the new energy secretary, Rick Perry, in a moment, which in itself, yeah, we're getting some... That takes some getting used to. But this is business as diplomacy. Does that work? I mean, there's, there's a kind of history of politicians like Trump bringing in people whom he believes kind of know how to get the job done, know how to strike deals and so on. But to me, it just, it's really jarring. It's very jarring. And the leader for me is more who gave him money in the campaign and then who gets a position, as well as a short-sighted sense of, as you say, the culture of people who he thinks he can get things done. So he's going to reach into the business community. But you look at Tillerson and say, fine, yeah, he's, he's running ExxonMobil. It's a multinational. It's nothing like running a country. And so, yes, he can walk into a room and he has gravitas and he's been in lots of these spaces before. But he's been running a company which has a single objective, not a country which has multiple objectives and multiple conflicts. And as Helen was saying, Syria is an incredibly divisive issue right now. And we've forgotten about Ukraine because that's so small beer compared to everything else that's happened. There are a number of flashpoints, which Tillerson has no command of whatsoever, and they're going to cause incredible strife going forward. And what are we meant to think about this shortlist? Because it's a really odd shortlist. We've got Romney, we have the Republican senator, we have Petraeus, the retired general CIA guy. But th there's no coherent worldview on that list at all. If anything, it's conflicting worldviews. So is, and I know this is one of the questions that people are asking about Trump all the time. Is it just kind of random, he just changes his mind, he doesn't know what he's doing? Or is this strategic? Actually, it was always going to be Tillerson, and this was a way of dressing it up to kind of throw people off the scent. And, and can I just say, I think he managed to, what's the best way to shame Romney and bring Romney back in? And for, for what reason did Romney fall for this? Romney should be more intelligent than that. But he fell for a hook, line, and sinker. But and he's that, He's bound in now. He's not alone. You should see the clip of Bill Gates talking about his conversation with Donald Trump and in which he says, well, Kennedy had his moonshot and Donald Trump is going to be the innovation president. God knows what's going on. There's a lot there. It reminds me of the conversation we had a few episodes ago about Peter Thiel and where some of these kind of business leaders are coming from. Then I suppose I would just say whatever it is that we said then about all of these guys. But on the shortlist, no, it, there's not a coherent foreign policy worldview. And I think if you go through the shortlist for the other positions, there's not going to be a coherent worldview about the policy area because this has been well documented, but apparently has no electoral consequences. Trump doesn't know very much about policy. But this is somebody who 
I think, operates a bit like a mob boss. I think loyalty is very important to him. And I think that what was happening with the shortlist was he was testing the people that he thought he could control in some way. And decided, despite bringing Romney to heel, that that was not going to work. Um, and that Mitt Romney was then going to go out into the world and have his own foreign policy and ignore whatever it was that was coming from the White House. And that was not going to be possible. I think that's really important, though, in this sense, is, is that for Trump to have appointed Romney, he would have to have believed that Rob- Romney was subordinate to him. Because I think whatever else Trump's failings are, I think he does have a coherent worldview. I think that's the one thing that's not lacking in what he has. We might not like his, his um, worldview, but he's been pretty consistent in the things that he said on foreign policy agenda going back to the 1980s. So to, to give us his worldview in a sentence, I know we've done this before, but remind us what it is. He thinks that the United States is a declining power and that he thinks that the United States has got to readjust its foreign policy commitments in relation to the fact of its failures abroad in foreign policy. And in doing so, he thinks it will be possible for America to project military power when it chooses to more effectively. And he thinks it will be possible to improve the domestic economy. Whether that is all achievable is another matter, but it is a consistent and coherent worldview. And Aaron, how does it then fit with some of the other appointments? So we've got John Bolton as the Deputy Secretary of State, right? Yes. He is hawkish. He's particularly hawkish on Iran. We've got these generals in various positions. So we've got Mad Dog Mattis, um, a Secretary for Defence. I believe his Christian name is James. Is it? Sorry. (laughs) It's rather than being Mad Dog, James Mattis. Um, we have who are the other? Remind me who are the other? Flynn generals? at the NSA. Flynn at the NSA. Um, John R. Kelly or John F. Kelly rather. Although we <laughs> wish it was John R. Kelly because that would be fantastic. But it's John F. Kelly as uh, head of Department of Homeland Security. So, so does this form a coherent package? Um, the the oil guy at doing diplomacy, but then these tougher figures in some of the tougher jobs. You know, it's a little bit simplistic to just say that they're tough. So James Mattis, nobody... I, there I am, naively general. Yeah, I mean, James James Mattis is also uh, famous for being incredibly well-read. He has a library of something around 10,000 books, uh, right? Uh, I think you can be tough and well-read. I don't, want to, I don't want to sound like I don't be believe those things You can be together. tough, and but at the same time, right, uh, nuanced in your worldview, right? So not just a hard charger who uh, does not behave uh, strategically. John Bolton, I would almost characterize as a non-strategic thinker in that he simply does not trust U.S. adversaries. Anything that is offered as a olive branch is seen as a fig leaf. Instead, it doesn't matter what the structure of the situation is. Everything is a, every offer of peace is a trap in Bolton's eyes. And so what is Bolton there to do? Is he there to be tough on Iran? Bolton could be there to be tough on Iran. And that is a consistent theme. If you compare Bolton and Mattis and say, what do they most obviously have in common is they both view Iran as a significant threat to U.S. interests in the Middle East. John F. Kelly is a fairly obvious choice at the Department of Homeland Security because he voiced the opinion back in 2014 that uh, southern threats as to the U.S. border, uh, Mexico, uh, right, bringing up, quote, druggers, drug dealers and, and rapists. I almost said druggists as if they were chemists, but, uh, you know, pharmacists, uh, uh, which perhaps the country lacks. But, uh, right, he said that this was a major issue the United States had to confront. So that was also a major platform that Trump stood on during the campaign. So that's a fairly obvious choice for Department of Homeland Security. You do have to wonder a bit how the close ties that they want to craft with Russia, and I think Aaron's right about the sort of the realist logic of of that, fits with the dismantling of the Iran deal that we're likely to get. Because Russia worked on that deal, and Russia worked very hard on that deal. And I can't imagine that in the Russian foreign policy establishment, there's appetite to take it apart and start over. 
I should just say that on that, though, that James Mattis, who was an opponent of the Iran deal and was one of the reasons essentially why Obama sacked him, is now made it pretty clear that he's not in favour of dismantling it. Just because he thought it was a bad idea at the time does not mean he thinks it's a good idea to get rid of it. I mean, is it possible that actually, though he has a coherent worldview, he hasn't thought at all about how the different bits of his worldview fit together and that he, he takes a business approach to this? It is a series of deals. And he's still working on the assumption that he can negotiate these things separately. When you look at some of the other picks, you do feel that they're being brought in for a very specific job. So you look at Price going into health and human services, and you know he is there to take the Affordable Care Act apart. And he's an ex-physician. He has the time in Congress. He has the detailed knowledge of what's going on with Medicare and Medicaid. That's his job. And then you look at other positions. I mean, Nikki Haley going to the UN... Basically, it says that he doesn't care about the UN because she doesn't have the background to take care of this position. So how does that all fit together? It doesn't. Each job is individual. And with the domestic roles, and maybe we should talk in a bit about just how significant these roles are, because we're really preoccupied with them because we're fascinated with what Trump is doing. I don't think any set of cabinet picks has ever had this kind of attention in modern history, partly because people often think that these roles aren't that significant. But it does also look like, not just in relation to healthcare, that he's putting in post people whose job is to take down the institution that they are ostensibly running in some sense. So Rick Perry has gone to energy, and that famously is the department that he wished to dismantle but forgot that he wished to dismantle it in the debate. Is that right, Aaron? He, That's can, he listed What were the two he... Can we remember? He, education. He, education was one, uh, I would guess... EPA is the other, though I'm not sure. Maybe it's the three E's, education, environment, and energy. But he, he stopped after two, and people should re-watch that um, clip. It's agony, but hilarious. As he flails around trying to remember the third, but now he'll remember because he runs it. Mr. Andrew Puzder. So if, if uh, Tillerson is an oil baron, he's a hamburger baron. I'm going to read you a couple of things that he said in the past. He's at labor, so his job is to protect the American worker because Trump is now the representative of the working class. We need to remember that. So earlier this year, in March, he was asked about the possibility of intelligent machines replacing the American worker. And he said of intelligent machines, they're always polite, they always upsell, they never take a vacation, they never show up late, there's never a slip and fall or an age, sex or race discrimination case. So that's machines versus the American worker. And then... He was also asked in 2013 um, about immigrant labor to the United States, and he said to the American Enterprise Institute, they're very hardworking, dedicated, creative people that really appreciate the fact that they have a job, whereas in other parts of the country, you often get people that are saying, I can't believe I have to work this job. So this guy is now at labor. I don't, what's that about? He gave money to the campaign. Is that it? Um, he, he's reneged on these things. He's now said he didn't mean it about robots. He didn't mean it about immigrants. Actually, what he believes is that um, American workers fill those qualities. So he doesn't believe that. What, or is he just there to kind of, is it just to say, screw you to the Labour Department? It's very hard for me to actually put my finger on what the logic is behind this. Because if anything, it looks like Trump shooting himself in the foot especially on this issue, right? You can say, well, he certainly didn't run as a proponent of the energy department. Nobody would run on that because it doesn't get you votes. So picking uh, Rick Perry doesn't really hurt you there, right? He didn't really run on 
public education, right? So picking Betsy DeVos, who might uh, dismantle public education in the, in the form that we know it in the United States, also doesn't really hurt him as much. But this seems to, right? Because as you just pointed out, it seems to go so strongly against what he's trying to represent. And yes, to try to put a convincing rationale to this would be entirely post hoc on my basis. And I think in general, I've been telling people, I think we oftentimes in political analysis, not just with Trump, but with a lot of people, try to rationalize after the fact. A lot of rational choice theory is actually just, in fact, I call it rationalization theory, because you can come up with all sorts of assumptions that can't actually be tested to show that something was a rational choice. I think we have to be very careful with doing that with with Trump as well, with assuming there's some rational master plan driving these, these actions. But is it possible that the primary motivation, whether it's post talk or in advance, is basically to tell the American administrative state that the people he's putting in charge to run the different bits of it don't believe in it? I mean, that actually that on the domestic front, what most of these people have in common is that they are running organizations whose purpose they fundamentally dispute. I mean, is that part of what's going on here? It does seem a consistent theme, right? The joke running around was uh, for a while was that Trump's head of the EPA doesn't like the environment. His health and human service secretary doesn't really believe in public health. His attorney general doesn't believe in justice, so on and so forth. So, I mean, that could be a consistent theme. How that helps Trump necessarily, un- unless you think he's just a hardcore, you know, starve the beast type conservative, which he hasn't been in the past, is confusing. The one theory I've seen floated is that Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, is this type of conservative, if you want to call him a conservative, whose goal is, as he said, basically a Trotskyite, right, destruction of the state as we know it. So if Bannon is the one influencing a lot of these picks, maybe it makes sense. And, and we don't want to get obsessed with Peter Thiel, <laughs> but the word is that he's in Trump Tower also playing a part in, in this too. And he also, he doesn't just want to starve the beast, he wants to disrupt it entirely. It does remind me a bit of, Norman Tebbit used to say this, and we'll come on to British politics in a moment, he used to say this about British government, that what tended to happen to people who were put in as Secretary of State in various departments as they very quickly went native, and they ended up representing the interests that the Thatcherite worldview was that they were meant to take down. So his famous joke was, you send someone to what the Americans would call the Labour Department, and they end up representing the unemployed. You send someone to the Foreign Office, they end up representing foreigners. And that maybe Trump believes that these hard-nosed generals or businessmen, and they're all men bar education. And transportation. And transportation. And heaven forbid that anyone should think he's sexist, because in a good old-fashioned 1970s way, he believes that you can put a woman in charge of education. Anyway, leaving that to one side... He presumably thinks that these people are not going to go native. I mean, so in the, so Tillerson in the State Department, the one thing he's not going to end up doing is parroting the foggy bottom worldview. I think that that's where the, we have to distinguish between the different levels of appointments because most of these cabinet positions don't actually matter. Um, they're, they're not a significant part of American politics. It doesn't quite work in the same way in which it does um, in Britain. The appointments that really matter in terms of how this presidency is going to turn out are the ones that are to do with national security and foreign policy. On the others, I think what we can see already is is that you know Trump is going to be selective about the issues that he campaigned upon in terms of what he's actually going to persist with once in, in office. 
the appointments that he's made that is going to matter in terms of the way in which this administration turns out are the ones that pertain to foreign policy. So in particular, his Secretary of State, his Defence Secretary, his National Security Advisor. I think most of the, the other ones, with the exception quite probably of his Attorney General, are going to be of much less significance. And what we can see in terms of the way in which Trump has dealt with the issues in which he campaigned on so far is that he's honed in on a few of them and he's already letting quite a number of them go. And I think that on the immigration issue, we'll see a lot more coming from Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, in dealing with illegal immigration and sanctuary cities. And we're going to see any fundamental change in economic policy around legal. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Immigration. Yeah, I mean, I think on immigration, that's right. They've been, I mean, Trump has been fairly consistent on this, that if if he goes for the stuff that he promised about deportations of undocumented immigrants, that's going to come in the form of starting with undocumented immigrants who have in some way fallen afoul of the criminal justice system. And they're basically going to use the criminal justice system as a immigration screening mechanism. And that throws up a whole range of interesting kind of legal issues, in part because lots of the criminal justice issues that they want to go after are things that happen at the state level, whereas immigration has historically been a federal issue. And so how that's going to be handled between the Justice Department and the criminal justice systems in the individual states, I think, is going to be a major flashpoint going forward. I think that Helen's right that in terms of setting policy agenda, it's the national security jobs where the people in those jobs historically have a role alongside the White House and the senior advisors in terms of deciding what's going to happen. But in terms of jobs with power to actually execute policy, the largest department in the federal government is and has been for many, many years, health and human services. That's huge amount of the day-to-day functioning of the American state actually happens under HHS. So that job really does matter. And if, you know, the the goal of that appointment is just to dismantle Obamacare. I mean, that's a policy goal, but we don't really know anything about how, you know, he would be able to, was his name, what is his name? Tom Price. 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 Would be able to kind of deal with the day-to-day mechanisms of administering this enormous bureaucracy. They all have these interchangeable, boring, late middle-aged white man names. Yeah, my so sister, my sister will kill me for forgetting that, though, because she's a doctor in training and she's really angry about this appointment. So. <laughs> but is it possible, so we tend to think about this, Why is he putting these people into these roles? What's the policy agenda? What do they want to do? Is it possible that one reason this time is different is that they actively want to undo and that actually, though these jobs are traditionally not very important because there's a limited amount that you can do as, say, energy secretary in terms of policy, but you can do quite a lot of undoing if you set your mind to it. I'm looking at this story that's been doing the rounds in the last 24 hours, and it is a bit sort of over the top, I think, but the Washington Post headline, scientists are frantically copying US climate data, fearing it might vanish under Trump, although the Trump um, camp have announced that they have no plans to hide or wipe out climate data. Nonetheless, there's a fear that the structures of the American state are going to have the rug pulled out from under them by some of these appointments. I don't know. I don't know enough about how American government works. It, it limits people's capacity to do, but does it limit people's capacity to undo? 
here's what I would distinguish between, right? It can be very hard to undo large acts that have been put in place. Like I'm thinking primarily of the Affordable uh, Health Care Act, right? The idea that you could maybe just take out one of the legs of the stool, for example, but still have the prohibition against denying people coverage if they have pre-existing conditions, that's not going to work, right? So that can be very hard to undo that. But there is large category of policy where all you have to do is not act and they will not be completed, right? So uh, thinking again about the Department of Justice, which has to take it upon itself oftentimes to enforce, say, civil rights laws in the states. Uh, Jeff Sessions does not have the best reputation for being a civil rights pioneer or advocate, right? He was rejected in 1986 from a federal judgeship by a Republican Senate for being too racist. So I often say we can't say exactly how far race relations have been set back by the Trump election, but we can say it's at least 30 years. So if he chooses not to act on a whole host of civil rights issues, then it'll be up to the states to take care of them, right? So there are a whole bunch of situations in the executive branch where unity of action is critical for things to get done. And sitting on your hands is pretty easy. The only other point for me around all of the appointments is the tension between us trying to put a logic of policy together versus Trump being a master of the short-term news cycle and the ability just to grab attention and deflect attention. And his acknowledgement of the locker-up was just a stunt and it was great on, on the stump speech and it was a brilliant line. That was just thrown away. And his ability then to deflect when, you know, there was a little bit of a rough news cycle. So let's get Kanye in. So Kanye walks through Trump Tower and, oh, suddenly all we're talking about is Kanye's gone to see Trump. He just has this in his bones understanding about how to run the media. And so I think you're seeing this tension between people like Bannon and others in the decision making cycle, as it were, trying to put some structure around the things that they want with some structure that he may be putting in and then just his native short term, I'm doing this for the attention and the entertainment value. But I think there's another element to this, which isn't so much about attention seeking. It is how much does he actually care about a great number of these appointments? He has to make appointments. I mean, you cannot leave American cabinet positions vacant. They also have to be got through the Senate. The Republicans only have a four seat majority in the Senate. There are plenty of Republicans in the Senate still who can't stand him. So I think that we can understand this well, as far as it's capable. We're capable of understanding it as much as in terms of defensive politics, in terms of not doing things that are not particularly important to him, as trying to find some positive, either I want to do this agenda or I want to dismantle this um, agenda. He has to fill cabinet positions. And do we think there's any chance that Tillerson won't get through the Senate? John McCain, Marco Rubio have already said some fairly strong things about their anxieties about relations with Russia. Do, I mean, none of this is a done deal. You know, none of the, the actual politics has started. I said this last week, I keep having to remind myself, he's not president yet. We have no idea what kind of a president he's going to be because he's not president. All he is is just a guy filling sort of holes on his whiteboard in Trump Tower, which says, we need someone here, we need someone here. The other thing to remember is not only might some of Trump's picks get pushback from, uh, I would call them sort of the more neoconservative members of the Senate, like McCain, like Rubio, like Graham, but a lot of norms have been broken in U.S. politics in the last year, especially Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, not even getting a hearing in the Justice Committee. You can't take it for granted that the Democrats in the Senate won't just filibuster everybody and force the Republicans to take the dramatic action of blowing up the filibuster in the Senate. A lot of bets are off 
I would say, not only for Tillerson, but for any nominee to any cabinet position, uh, even if it's one that doesn't usually get much attention. It's not a it's not a done deal. And when Tillerson's name first appeared, I thought there was some chance that he would not be confirmable by the Republican Senate. But I think that the revelations that he was actually suggested by Condoleezza Rice and Bob Gates have kind of changed the politics around Tillerson's nomination. And for every Republican in the Senate, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are extremely hawkish about Russia, there are also Republicans in the Senate who want a different energy policy than than the one that Obama administration has pursued. And they're going to be quite keen on Tillerson, I think, for that reason. So there are a couple of other things I think we should talk about before we go. Um, In a moment, we're going to talk about anything that might have cheered us up in the past year, because it's a bit doomy and gloomy sometimes on this podcast. Not our fault, I should say. But we've been talking about cabinet government in the United States. And as Helen says, it's not completely clear, certainly by British standards, it's what we mean by cabinet government. And it's not clear how much power or authority some of these roles command. We do in this country have what you might call real cabinet government. And that includes cabinet collective responsibility. And in the last week in Britain, we haven't talked much about Britain recently, but there's clearly been some tension within the British cabinet. At the moment, it seems to be between Boris Johnson and 10 Downing Street, Theresa May and her operation, but also between the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, and Theresa May. And I mean, some of this is inevitably around Brexit, but the, the Johnson-Theresa May spat was over Saudi Arabia. And there are two narratives being told about British government at the moment, one of which is that Theresa May is running an extraordinarily centralised government. She chairs all the key cabinet committees. Her two chief aides, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, even by the standards of a Downing Street operation, are running a really ruthless and the other big sort of newsy spat this week was about her leather trousers and the way in which they slapped down. I know, I'm sorry, Maha's rolling her eyes. It is a total non-story. But what it did give was a little glimpse, as any email exchange that's released always does, of just how much these people hate each other. Um, so one story is it's a really centralised, tight operation. The other is that it's pretty uh, fractious and actually somewhat chaotic. You've got Boris Johnson doing something over here. We've got the Chancellor and Number 11 running another Brexit policy over here. We've got the three Brexiteers falling out among themselves. I mean, both of these things could be true. It's it's a very difficult and uncertain time. But Finbar, is your sense that this is a centralised operation or that it is pretty fractured? I don't think it's centralised. I think there is an attempt to control, but that's not centralisation. And so all of the signals coming out, as you say, around Trousergate, if I'm allowed to use that phrase, are that they are now terrified of different uh, policy positions or different arguments spilling out into the public, and they're desperately trying to control everybody. Um, When the cabinet was originally formed and the three Brexiteers, to use that horrible phrase, were put in, I thought, okay, so Theresa May, having been a Remainer, has said they are going to carry the can for whatever negatives come with what is inevitable now because she's you fully Brexit, signed up. You Brexit, you fix it. Yeah, exactly, as the phrase goes. Yeah, I think unfortunately for her, depending on your position, given the Article 50 uh, legal challenge and the other pieces that have gone on, that road and that space to get to any level of clarity and to actually move things on has lengthened out and has made that position worse. It's allowed for these disagreements and arguments to come about. So I think she actually right now, yeah, has an incredibly fractious cabinet and one which in the new year, depending on how quickly they get to Article 50 invocation and get over the legal challenge and just get on with it, could get much, much worse. And Helen, what's your sense of the Theresa May-Boris Johnson 
fallout is he is he the fall guy at some point for whenever she needs to make you know a sacrifice would be useful at this point boris you've served your purpose or is this a genuine power struggle i think that there is a genuine power struggle going on but i think it's wrong to start from the premise that um, theresa may is a reluctant brexiteer i think that she's embraced brexit i suspect that she was actually on the side underlyingly of brexit during the referendum if you look at her history and you look at the people around her I think that the problem for her is is that she has somebody who wants the leadership of the Conservative Party as Foreign Secretary. Now, David Cameron was not in that position. He had people in his cabinet who wanted to succeed him as leader of the Conservative Party, but were willing to wait for him to leave whenever he chose to leave. Theresa May's not in that position. So she's got, in that sense, a cabinet that looks rather more like the late Blair ones when you had Gordon Brown snapping away at Tony Blair's heels all the time. I think the other thing that's going on is is the relationship between the politicians in the government and the civil service. Is that The civil service isn't that keen on Brexit from what we can um, see. And it looks like some of what Theresa May is trying to do in terms of controlling cabinet committees is as much about the relationship between the politicians and the civil service as it is relations within her cabinet. And in that sense, I think that she's she is sort of centralising power much more than Cameron did, but it is it has to be understood in that bigger context rather than just about the internal political dynamics of the cabinet that are problematic. I mean, Cameron pushed all the Conservative Party's problems over the EU into the Parliamentary Party and he kept it largely out of his cabinet. Theresa May is not in a position um, to do that. She's going to have to live with a much more complicated cabinet than Cameron um, ever did. I would say that as awful as the situation in Syria is, I was watching yesterday and thinking that Yemen is sort of the forgotten war right now going on in the Middle East and Britain, as well as the United States, do sell a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia, which is arguably perpetrating war crimes in Yemen, just as uh, the Russians, Iranians, and Syrians are in Syria. Not on the same scale, but it has been placed on the back burner. And so it's an unfortunate situation for the people of of Yemen that uh, not a lot of people are talking about it because of other things going on in the world. And this was what Boris Johnson was talking about, right? Yes, precisely. So, 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 so that was your this is quite the polite way of saying this is there's a serious there's point a, here. This isn't just internal Tory party personality politics. He was Boris Johnson was making a serious point. No, it's absolutely a serious but point. But not only was he making a serious point in the last few days, I mean the Obama administration has said it's going to or at least it's been reported by Reuters that the Obama administration is going to cut down on some arms sales to Saudi Arabia precisely over the Yemen issue. So in that sense, it's possible that Boris Johnson is actually more in line with thinking in the dying Obama administration than Theresa May is. I mean, this is all, all horribly complicated, right, by the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the phrase for the nuclear deal with Iran that just rolls right off the tongue, the JCPOA, because a lot of people view that deal as incredibly alarming to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And because of that, the Obama administration, Britain, others had to throw a sop to Saudi Arabia and perhaps turn a blind eye to actions in Yemen that they wouldn't have otherwise to maintain some semblance of a balance of power in the Middle East. And so what's so rare about that little conversation is that we talked about the Obama administration again, because it's still... I did say dying. I know, (laughs) (laughs) but still not dead, right? What sound does a dying lame duck make? I was just going to say on on the arms sales piece of 
you know, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Britain is a signatory to the arms trade treaty now. And I think part of what's happening here is that if, if this continues, somebody in the foreign office knows that Britain could be liable for the sales that it's made. I think the U.S., although having signed, will not ratify because the Senate will not put it through. Um, but Britain will probably go through with it and, and then is not going to be able to continue the relationship with Saudi Arabia that it's historically had. Okay, before we finish, next week, Helen and I are going to be joining Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush of the New Statesman podcast. And together, we're going to be doing a kind of look back, look forward, plenty to talk about. Uh, some of our listeners, one in particular, someone I spoke to last night, hello, Miranda, said, there's too much doom and gloom on this podcast. When are we going to offer some good news? So in that spirit, is it the Christmas spirit? I don't know. Is Christmas about good news? I guess it is. Uh, Helen and I will hold fire on this and we may not be able even in the space of a week to come up with any good news. <laughs> but I'm going to ask Maha, uh, Aaron and Finbar. In 2016, what really cheered you up about politics? We got a hand up from Maha. Okay. A finger. Can be anywhere in the world, right? Any, and it can be anything. Okay. Um, Pakistan was a bright spot this year, which has not been a bright spot at any point in recent memory. But two very good things happened. One is that the country outlawed honor killings, which has been a huge political issue in the region for a while. And what's interesting about it is it happened because there was a documentary made by a female filmmaker that ended up winning an Oscar. Um, and the fact that she won an Oscar for documenting how horrific the treatment of women is in certain parts of Pakistan. There was a, a moment where I thought that was going to backfire and people were going to be so angry that she had won this international award for bringing shame and there was going to be a repeat of the way that Malala Yousafzai was treated. And that didn't happen. They were able to pass legislation and they have outlawed those killings. So that was a bright spot. And I thought that was going to be the one. And then just a couple of weeks ago, the civilian government there managed to what should be totally routine you know, have stand down, I mean, asked to resign, and then the person resigned, the chief of the army staff and replaced them, which you should have in a country that officially has civilian control of the military, but which has never happened. So that is a country that was not heading in the right direction, I think, a year or two ago, and now seems to be. And what's cheering about that is that I'm certainly used to thinking that all backfires will backfire. You know, anytime there's a piece of good news, the lesson I've drawn from 2016 is that it'll end up being worse than if it had never happened because it will so alienate the people who are pissed off by it. So there's, that was good news. Aaron, um, top that. Oh, geez, I didn't know it was <laughs> going to be a competition. Uh, we were uh, talking a few weeks ago on the podcast about all these strange election outcomes. One of them we mentioned was uh, the referendum in Colombia rejecting the peace deal with the FARC. Uh, but now it looks like that is going ahead. Just the other day, Santos received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work there. And so that's a multi-decade civil war uh, that's coming to an end. And even though really you had seen a large decline in violence, that's nothing to sneeze at. Great. And so referendums, you can just plow on as though they hadn't happened. Well, <laughs> Brexit means Brexit. But. <laughs> Finbar, you get the last gone. Um, so you've got two to talk. Peace and Pakistan. This is Angela Merkel. Um, her treatment of refugees and her ability to see a situation and adapt. This wasn't a planned policy from two years ago. This was something that happened very, very quickly after seeing the situation evolve in Syria and with specific uh, meetings she had with uh, immigrants. To, to see Germany open its border and take so many refugees is heartening. Are you not worried with that one that the backfire effect will kick yeah. in? Uh, and again, and but, actually it will end up being worse. It, it, Sorry, I know, but like, I, I, don't, I can't resist. I don't think so, actually. Okay. I, don't, I don't think Good. the backfire there. Is, there is going to be negative effects. That's without question. 
is it going to backfire? The question comes down to whether Merkel can get re-elected next year. Uh, for people like me, she's the bulwark right now, given what's happened in all of the other elections so far. And the fact that we seem to be happy that 46% of the uh, far right vote in the Austrian rerun of the presidential. Great, it was only 46. We need to readjust our perspectives. So that's why I'm hanging on to Merkel as a bright spot in the year. So and that's a good note on which to end. We're hanging on. Uh, Helen, you and me will come up with lots of good news next week. And the new statesman is nothing but good news. So that will be fun. Do join us for that. That that will be the first of our joint podcasts. And we're going to be in the new year doing all sorts of exciting things on this podcast. And the week after, in between Christmas and New Year, we're all going to be giving some of our predictions about what we think might happen in 2017. So join us for that as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and rating us on iTunes. Do follow us on Twitter as well. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. You're Angela Merkel. It was 2015, not 2016. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I was searching so hard. <laughs> yeah. So fucking hard. She's changed I, the policy in 2016. I, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. Said, well, you know, as Gary Johnson pointed out, the Earth is not going to be enveloped by the sun for exactly. billions of more years. It's a good year. <laughs> I, I was trying not to use the line that, by contrast to what 2017 is going to be, 2016 was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> was it like those photos? Yes. That book yes. on the third, yes. the third right on drugs. You know that book?